Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Amanda Rupenthal-Stein. Amanda, welcome to the Sounding Jewish podcast, and thank you so, so much for agreeing to speak with me today. I have been wanting to get you in an interview for months and months and months, and the day is here, and I'm so excited. So I will, without further ado, ask you if you'd like to introduce yourself. I'm so glad to be here, Sam, and I'm so glad we finally connected on this. I'm Amanda Rupenthal-Stein. I am a lecturer in music at Carroll University, which is a small liberal arts college in Waukesha, Wisconsin, outside of Milwaukee. I think of myself as a specialist in 19th century identity of Jews in classical music, so my focus is really from Mendelssohn to Mahler, but not necessarily engaging directly with Mendelssohn and Mahler, but those that are fitting into those circles. That's totally cool. Maybe we should take it back a couple of years and talk a little bit about your first encounters with Jewish sounds or music. Why were these such a formative experience for you? How did you find yourself interested in Jewish music? And what kinds of personal or musical experiences motivated you to want to study more? Sure. So I actually want to take this really far back to in my early childhood because I was a girl of the American Girl doll generation and I grew up loving history. I'm from the Midwest and so I had a pioneer doll growing up and then I had a couple other American Girl dolls, but the books were always really first and foremost for me. And so I often credit those as I'm a historian because my mom, who was a second grade teacher, read me those books and bought me those dolls. So I have always loved history. And then when I went off to the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee to study clarinet performance, I had a really fine clarinet teacher. His name is Todd Levy, a real amazing mentor for me, a member of the Milwaukee Symphony. And I loved studying with him. He was pulling students from major conservatories from Juilliard to come study with him. And he was right in my backyard. So I was getting my master's studying with him and I wanted another year basically to study clarinet. And so what better sort of reason to do that, but let's also get a master's degree in music history and I'll, I'll write a master's thesis and keep playing clarinet. I did not really have a topic, but I knew that I had been playing for my master's recital, the Bernstein Clarinet Sonata, which is his opus one. And I had looked at music of Paul Benheim and other Jewish composers. And so I landed on Bernstein. I wrote my master's thesis on his Scottish Symphony. Look, do you 
see how simple and peaceful it all becomes once you believe? And then I took a couple of years to work at a nonprofit and kind of figured out what I was going to do with my life and realized that what I missed the most about the academy was teaching. And so I started looking for PhD programs. I wasn't super mobile when I was looking for PhD programs, but I landed at Northwestern, which I feel really lucky and blessed to have ended up there. And it was a really interesting program because it didn't necessarily distinguish between musicology and ethnomusicology. And while I definitely think of myself as a musicologist and a historicist, we had a lot of conversations kind of across the aisle with the various faculty. And that's how I ended up where I am. Makes a lot of sense. So can we dig a little bit more into your scholarly trajectory about your decision to go to Northwestern and maybe the scholars that mentored you while you were there and afterwards and how you even chose your initial research topic. Why did you decide to go from Bernstein to German Jewish identity (laughs) experience? It is true. I I entered Northwestern thinking that I was going to be an Americanist, and I thought initially I was going to look at Bernstein some more. Then I spent a little time looking at the origins of the Union Hymnal in a couple of papers for a couple of classes. And then I kind of like to say that I tripped and I fell back into the sonic space of who I was as a clarinetist. I loved playing Brahms and Todd, my clarinet teacher, was a real Brahms expert. was the sound space that I ended up in. And the way I ended up there was with my mentor, who ultimately became my dissertation advisor, Jesse Rosenberg. I sort of got my way into a class on 19th century orchestral music, which I probably didn't need because I knew that repertoire really well. One day he said to me, I was looking on Naxos and I saw a symphony called a Miriam symphony. Can you figure out what that's all about? because this was the soundscape of the Brahmsian world. The composer's name is Friedrich Gensheim, and he was a contemporary of Brahms, lived through into the 20th century. 
And so that was sort of how I landed on my work was initially looking at um, Friedrich Gansheim, who ultimately became the far end of my dissertation, the latest two case studies, two chapters that I looked at. But I felt really blessed to be working with Jesse because Jesse's an Italian opera scholar, but he had been coming throughout his career to looking at Jewish music studies, philo-Semitic operas in the Italian tradition. And so while he wasn't focused on Germany, we were able to have a lot of really interesting conversations across the continent. And I also worked with at Northwestern Drew Davies, who studies New Spain, and he was one of really my great mentors. I think that Drew was able to ask those probing questions that I was seeing past because those of us that are in Jewish music studies, we have that really unique language where we're in these two disciplines, but we can function in both of them. And Drew was always able to ask those just subtle questions on identity or how in a certain time and in a certain place, someone was self-conceptualizing and realizing that in their work. So he was another really formative influence on me at Northwestern. How would you say that your interest in the study of Jewish music was shaped by your experience in graduate school? Were there other scholars working on Jewish music other than your advisor, let's say, while you were at Northwestern? And likewise, what kinds of advice from your own experiences would you offer to prospective students who are now planning to enter this field of study? Oh, those are great questions. When I was at Northwestern, we didn't have anyone else that was working specifically on Jewish music in the student body. We had several other students who self-identified as Jewish in their lives and in sort of side research interests. And so there was often kind of some conversations like that. And the same was true of the faculty. Uh, Ina Naroditskaya and Linda Austern had personal interest and also some research interests in Jewish music. So they really fostered my interest in these topics and also helped me find ways to engage with those beyond the 19th century where I was sort of landing in that coursework piece. I thought they balanced really well, like, um, you know what, write a paper on something else this semester, or you know what, here's a Jewish topic within our 17th century discussion, why don't you pull that thread? And I think that's something I would really send to up and coming graduate students is I didn't know where I would end up entering graduate school. I knew I wanted to engage with Jewish music in some context. I knew very little and I only realized that now, but I knew I was a fan of a lot of Jewish music topics and I didn't know where that was going to take me. And some people know right away and that is wonderful. And I am not saying that that's not a way to go, but I think there's a flexibility that you can open yourself up to. And like I said, maybe you'll trip and fall and you'll end up someplace that's familiar and entirely new, which I think is what happened to me looking at these folks of the 19th century. That's a really wonderful way to put it. It's almost like tripping and falling into Wonderland a little bit. Yeah, I mean, our research areas are kind of Wonderland and they become these people that you feel like you know so much. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely an archivist. Unfortunately, I'm also a dissertation of the pandemic. So I love being in the digital archive. I love sitting in with people's handwriting and um, newspapers and, and navigating through this real mixture of personal and private and public correspondence. I think that that in many ways defines who I am as a scholar. And also who I am as a teacher, I really have been trying to bring in a lot of things in my classroom at Carroll, newspapers, personal letters. I think it makes things more real. And yeah, like you said, the, the wonderland of it all, but they also become these real people that feel something to you.
even if it's not someone that we can listen to their words in recording. Yeah, definitely. You're a little bit of a special case for this podcast because you just completed a dissertation titled very appropriately for our purposes, sounding even <laughs> to them. So I'm going to ask you the very probing question of why you decided that this should be the title of your dissertation project. And of course, along that vein, I'd love to hear more about the project, why you chose it and what has excited you most about it. Sure. I'm going to read you the full title with the colon because many, but not all good dissertations have a colon, right? Sounding Judentum colon, assimilation, art music, and being Jewish musically in 19th century German-speaking Europe. So that mouthful is where I landed after a number of various iterations. But yeah, when you told me what your podcast was going to be called, I remember being like, hey, that's my, that's my future book title. But I love your podcast and I'm super excited. That's pretty fun. We've got a nice connection here. I made a conscious decision maybe six months into working on my dissertation, which I kind of wrote from the inside out. I think this happens. I started with Garantine, then I went back to one of my earliest case studies and then filled the meat in in the middle. But I made a conscious decision about six months in uh, after qualifying exams, not to translate the word Judentum that was showing up in a lot of places in my dissertation. The first place for me that it had shown up was in a letter from Friedrich Gernsheim's best friend, Max Bruch. There are about 300 or so letters that survive between the two of them. But Bruch is sort of defending Gernsheim and saying, I can't believe that the people of Mainz don't want to hire you because of your religion, your Judentum. And I was finding so many times that this word Judentum defied translation. And we know this from the various translations of Wagner's uh, Das Judentum in der Musik, where Judaism and music, Jewishness in music, which I think is what David Conway lands on and then uses that as the title of his book really appropriately. And I think that feels like the closest, but Jews and music. And so I was really struggling with what Judentum meant in the various contexts. I was looking at a lot of Allgemeine Zeitung des Judentums, and it just kept coming up and it never felt satisfying or I wasn't being consistent. And so I was finding that, particularly for the 19th century, I needed to write the definition for myself, that to be Jewish musically to mark your Jewishness musically and not just sonically, but in your musical relationships, in your professional relationships, in your private family life as a musician and as a a Jew was really varied. And so I kept it as it was. And I I don't feel that that's a cop-out. I feel like that that is sort of allowing um, the German Jews to have this thing that defies um, our kind of 21st century English American view of it. So that was how I landed on that. And my dissertation ended up being sort of series of case studies, starting with Ferdinand Hiller and looking at his relationship with Mendelssohn. And then on on the far end with Gerentheim, who knew Max Bruch, but also prepared the choir for Mahler's resurrection. So there's my two guys, Mendelssohn and Mahler, that I don't deal with, but I, I do deal with. And I wanted to look at how these art music composers were expressing Jewishness or engaging with their Jewishness, their Judentum throughout the century, because I felt so much going into the conversation, especially having been a burgeoning Bernstein scholar, that we were using 20th century definitions to define what it means to be Jewish in art music. 
using Jewish texts, referencing liturgical music, referencing cantorial tradition, using folk songs, the Bloch, and then of course, a Bernstein model, which I love and I sit with and is a big part of my teaching practice and my personal listening practice. But it wasn't working for the 19th century. And sort of naively, I thought it would work. And I initially went into it imagining that that model would work. I was going to find the Jewish soundscape, find the Jewish sources, find the cantorial music in the Germans. Uh, Long story short, it's not there. Something else is. But when I was looking at the Gernsheim Miriam Symphony, it's a symphony number three in C minor, in the great C minor key. And so we all know the, the Beethoven reference there. I discovered that the archive for Gernsheim was in Jerusalem at the National Library because uh, Gernsheim's daughter had made it to Palestine. Ultimately, I didn't know this at the time, but she basically on the last boat out. So really kind of a miraculous story that she brought her father's archive initially to Tel Aviv and then ultimately bequested it to the National Library. Um, so I was really welcomed and accommodated by Gila Flam and all of the other researchers there. And I feel so blessed that I was able to get a grant from Northwestern to go and look at Gernsheim's archive. But I didn't find that proverbial book that says how I did it here are my Jewish sources in the Miriam Symphony. You know, his diaries and his um, and his letters. What they showed me was a really assimilated, proud German individual who loved Brahms and was curious about Wagner and was, as I said, best friends with Max Bruch. And so something else was there. So I started looking for a lot of different things. Sometimes it was a quotation and there are a few cases David Broadbach has looked at the ideas of this in Carl Goldmark's Queen of Sheba opera. And I looked at that one also in, in my dissertation. But there were other things about people's Jewishness, their engagement with Jewish organizations, early Zionist organizations. They're looking at their families, if at all, or when they were baptized, what that meant in their private letters later. Ferdinand Hiller, who was the early, my early example, writing reviews of cantorial music in the journals of the day and being seen as an expert that could talk about that in addition to everything that he was doing in the symphonic world. And so these networks of Jewishness, of Judentum, really kind of form the foundation of my dissertation work and what I hope will ultimately turn into that book, working on that proposal right now. Awesome. I've asked this question of other more junior scholars, and I'll ask you the question too. And that question is really, what kinds of shifts or changes do you see coming from the process of taking your dissertation and turning it into a book? That's a really good question, and one that I'm still figuring out. I think it's been sort of historically a given, right, that you finish your dissertation and it used to be that you didn't put that into a book and you had to sort of change it up a lot, whereas I've been really encouraged, um, particularly some of my faculty advisors at Northwestern in the Crown Center for Jewish and Israel Studies really encouraged me that this case study model is attractive for publishers and looking at like, can this dissertation really grow somewhat quickly, tidy up all those those loose ends and everything. So I would like to see it go close to as it is, but I'm still in that proposal stage. I think we're seeing so many great books in Jewish music studies coming out in the past five years or so, five, 10 years. 
I can tell you when I was a young undergrad and starting to look at Jewish music, that was right when the Rubin and Barron book had been published. And there was so little. And even the, the Grout Barkholder barely talked about the Holocaust. And not that it's got a terribly satisfying discussion now, but I think it mentions Zoltzer and the Grout Barkholder now. So, you know, Jewish music studies being something that is starting to be on the broader conversation and broader interest of publishers is exciting. And that's changed even, again, in my own memory. Those are great reflections. So I know that many scholars celebrate the opportunity to teach others as an extension of their own research pursuits, and that you've been teaching recently at Carroll University. Can you tell me or talk to me a little bit about your recent lecturing or teaching experience at Carroll and how that has contributed to the growth of your research agenda? Sure, that's a great question. I really feel like right now, professionally, I'm kind of in the thick of teaching and I'm pushing myself a lot to work on my research, but I defended my dissertation on Zoom in December of 2020 and walked in person in, in June of 20, 2021, fully masked, all of that. But I feel really lucky that I found a job and my spouse, my partner is a Khazan. And so we weren't as upwardly mobile as a lot of people. And I feel really lucky that I found something that was half an hour from where I live. And I'm the only musicologist in this really small department and I'm part-time. Uh, we have a full faculty member in instrumental music, in theory, composition and choral education. We also have a music therapy department, which has been really fascinating as a musicologist, because this is a group of students that I had not experienced either at a state school or at a conservatory like Northwestern. And they ask really interesting questions and probe really interesting questions. So the way my teaching schedule looks like right now, in the fall, I teach a 100 level non-major course. I have been teaching a film music class that I inherited, but there are a lot of Jewish composers in film music. And so I think my students get a little bit tired of me being like, well, that person studied with Mahler. That person had Jewish immigrant parents. We have some good laughs about that. So they all know about my interest. So I do that class and I do history one in the fall. And then um, I do history two, which is Beethoven to 2021 is our goal, 2022. And then I also am teaching the music as culture which is a split class for non-majors and music majors. And so I think being someone in Jewish music studies gives us really interesting avenues into teaching classes like that. These formerly world music classes, now we're, we're thinking about these often close to home. One of my goals in that class has been really to look at my state, looking at Wisconsin. And many of my students that are music majors are future teachers or future music therapists. So looking at indigenous music in Wisconsin. Wisconsin has a really big Hmong population. So looking at Hmong music and bringing in Hmong musicians and also engaging with the Latin diaspora in Milwaukee in the broader Midwest has been a really fascinating way to make this class like mean a lot, but also be kind of close to home. Yesterday, we were looking at Gamelan in uh, World Music Cultures. And then, and then I went and taught about Mendelssohn's Elijah in my other class back to back. I think as someone that has this research interest that doesn't get covered a lot in my teaching practice, I find ways to bring it in, but also we in Jewish music studies are interested in communities 
and social networks and these long conversations from, you know, Lador Vador, from generation to generation. And I think that my teaching practice reflects that, looking at links across generations, across conversations, across time. And I, I try to bring that in a lot to my teaching practice. That's a great answer. What kinds of new research questions or subjects are currently preoccupying you? Especially given that you recently traveled on this incredible trip to the Abu Daya community in Uganda with your husband. And from what I've read, you've done this great field work with that community. And it was something about an 100th birthday party, if we could put it that way, um, in celebration of the community. And I just love to hear about what is it like to embrace field work, maybe for the first time. <laughs> so as I've been listening to your podcast, uh, one of the threads that's been coming through is this idea of our non-academic lives and our academic lives coming together and merging. And so my journey to work with the Abayodaya and to learn from the Abayodaya started when my rabbi, the, the rabbi that I, I was um, attending synagogue in graduate school, he was part of one of the rabbinical assemblies Bate Din that went to Uganda to do some of the formal conversions through the conservative and Masorti movement for the Abayudaya. So he had been for a long time telling us stories about his experience, and he brought Rabbi Gershom Suzomo to Milwaukee to speak and share his stories. And so I'd always been really captivated about it. And my husband had had a similar story in that he was living in Jerusalem during cantorial school at the same time that Rabbi Suzomo was there in rabbinical school. And so he had heard Rabbi Suzumu sing, and we both kind of came into our musical marriage relationship and said, if we ever get a chance, we have to go and learn more about this music. And then the Cantor's Assembly wanted to make a statement of support of the Abayudaya. They had been having challenges getting visas to access the conservative yeshiva and other places of education in Israel. So at the Cantor's Assembly Convention, they asked for volunteers who wanted to go on this trip and help plan this trip. And my husband walks up to the front and says, I'm interested. And they're like, great, you're a co-chair. So then he calls me up from uh, Los Angeles or whatever and says, hey, I, I think I'm co-chairing a trip to Uganda. And I said, all right, I'm coming too. Yeah, I ended up having this wonderful chance in January of 2019 to travel with a delegation of about a dozen cantors to Uganda to learn from the Abayodaya. And it was really a very interesting mission because the cantors were not necessarily going with an agenda of teaching. They were going with an agenda of learning and listening and then working in a recording studio to make some new recordings with Rabbi Suzomo and the other young people. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Since my work with the Abayodai, I had the wonderful pleasure of learning and presenting with Rabbi Dr. Jeff Summit who did the initial research on this and was part of putting together the wonderful Smithsonian Folkways CD, but nothing had been done for a very long time. And so the community had shifted. It was, you know, a dozen years later. And through a two-week, very intense trip, we traveled and visited multiple communities. The magic of modern technology, my cell phone took amazing recordings and videos, and I continue to listen and engage with those.
And I realized that I needed to learn more and I hadn't learned enough. So six months after my initial trip, I went back this time with Hazan Michael Stein from Los Angeles and a few others to actually go to the 100th year celebration of the Abayudaya, which was an amazing experience. There were representatives from Bechol Shon and from the Jewish Agency for Israel, but also there were several thousand community members, Jews and non-Jews, Christians and Muslims from the Mbali region. And so this is a relationship that I feel like I've started. The magic of the internet is that we can WhatsApp and ask questions of our constituents now. I'm not an ethnomusicologist, but I'm learning. I'm reading a lot. I'm studying a lot. I'm leaning the wonderful models that we have in Jewish music studies. And I think that this is something about our field is that we are called to often have a specialty, but also be pretty conversant in a lot of areas of Jewish music and music of the Jews. And so this is my sort of secondary specialty. I have another project that I'm kind of working on right now. While I was in Jerusalem looking at the Gernsheim archive, I found a letter from the Musikverein von Milwaukee, uh, the German Music Society of Milwaukee. And it was, it was this absolutely almost out-of-body experience. I have traveled across the world, and there's a letter from one American music society to Gernsheim, and it's from my home city. I've been trying to sort of piece together what this organization was. And I have had this kind of working theory that it was a lot of German Jewish names. And that's the history of Milwaukee Jewish community is that it was initially a, a German population, the sort of secondary beer barons. They were not the top tier ones that we have all the buildings named after in Milwaukee, but they were the second tier. And what I've discovered so far, this was um, just formed right after statehood in the 1850s and through the Civil War era to about 1900, 1910, is that it was a real amazing mixture of Jews and non-Jews in musical conversation, bringing musics together uh, of the European tradition. Uh, initially, it's the music Brian von Milwaukee, uh, mostly German music, but they do start to get some Italian opera later on. And one of the things that I remember getting asked in my dissertation defense is where are the women? And I don't talk about a lot of women in Europe, a lot of Jewish women. We we have some that we know of, right? We know of Sarah Levy and we know of um, some of the, uh, the wives of these composers, but there are not many. But there's a lot of women in this conversation about the Milwaukee Jewish community. So that's been sort of a fun little side project. I don't quite know where it's going to go yet, but doing archival research right at home that started across the world. It's really special when projects like that just fall into your lap. You find something incredible in an archive, and then you just want to know more and more, and you keep tugging and pursuing that lead. So I'm excited for you, and I'm excited to see where that goes and what else you're able to uncover. Amanda, what would you say some of the personal dimensions are that come into the study of Jewish music in a way that wouldn't necessarily be true just of music studies? Sure, that's a great question. So I already mentioned that I married a Chazan, and so I have this wonderful working relationship with someone that's a professional Jewish musician. And I'm also really lucky that Jeremy, my husband, is really good at saying, 
Oh, that's that's a question for my wife. Or uh, so we bounce ideas off together a lot, which is really fun. But I had my first daughter when I was in my first year of my PhD program, and I adopted my second daughter right after my comps qualifying exams. So I think that being a mother is a big part of my identity, and it's also a big part of being a Jewish woman. And so being a mother, I think also is something I think about a lot in as being a Jewish music scholar. There are a lot of kids if you go to the AJS, the Association for Jewish Studies Conferences, including my little son who Sam, you met when he was three months old and he came to his first AJS. I have to say he was wearing the cutest Hanukkah onesie I've ever seen. Oh, <laughs> the little Hanukkah onesie. Oh man, he's so big now. But being a mother and being an academic is something that I really see as part of my long-term calling. How do we support parents or caretakers who are with children and also by extension, you know, others in their lives that, that they are caring for and who are doing their work and doing their research. And it shapes sort of how I manage my time and how I think about Jewish music. It also shapes how I'm sitting and analyzing the music my kids are singing at their day school. And so I do feel that my long-term career trajectory is going to involve this in some way, being a young mother in graduate school, being a, a young and upcoming scholar, but also managing three little kids, their lived experiences, their Jewish experiences, my research experiences. I wouldn't have it any other way. It's the only way I know. And I'm so grateful that kids and children are so valued in, in Jewish studies, because I do think that that can be visible in Jewish studies and in Jewish music studies. I know that I leaned a lot on female academics. I specifically sought out a member of my committee, Claire Sufrin, at Northwestern, because she was a mother and also an amazing scholar of Jewish studies. And she could function in both of those positions and both of those mentor roles for me. And also she could sort of check in and say, how are your kids? And, and then we could say, okay, and let's look at your dissertation and let's look at your draft. And so that's something that I want to always put at the front of who I am as a scholar is that I am a, I'm a mother as well. Thank you for being so vulnerable about that. I think it's something we don't speak enough about, um, about the actual human experiences that accompany us along our academic journeys. So I really do appreciate that you're willing to tell me a little bit about that. Thank you for letting me share. Let me ask you some of the big questions relating to this podcast. How would you say you understand the field of Jewish music? What issues or challenges with this field of study do you think scholars today need to remain attentive to? First of all, I think we need to continue to try to figure out the name of our field. Are we the field of Jewish music? Are we the field of music and Jewish studies? Are we the field of music and the Jewish people? And be really mindful about it and make careful decisions when we're teaching classes, um, naming classes, even as we might talk about Jewish music more colloquially among ourselves, because we are not always thinking about Jewish music. Sometimes we are thinking about Jews and music. A lot of my own work in the 19th century was digging out of a few existing narratives that really needed things to fall into tidy boxes of Jewish sonic spaces or seeing the 19th century through a 20th century lens. 
And I think finding the language, finding the frameworks for um, the different times and spaces is something we're still, we're still doing. And it's a challenge to write the 19th century when you know what's coming in the 20th century as a scholar and in the mid 20th century, and they don't. And so their attitudes are so positive and their outlook is so promising. So balancing that and engaging with a lot of conversations on that are already happening in Jewish studies and have been happening for a while. And so drawing on those into Jewish music studies, I think that's a really important thing that we can do. And I also think continuing to have conversations outside of our discipline on where we fit into the broader narratives is something that I'm putting it into my teaching practice, but I, I want to continue to do throughout my career, that we were there in these conversations or our, um, our, our research topics were there <laughs> and framing these conversations so they're not just for our own audience, but for a broader musicological audience. That's really helpful. And I think your meditations on the problems and problematics of naming a field Jewish music studies when folks like you and I do not write about Jewish music per se, but really about Jewish people in music and how it is that their backgrounds and their experiences and the trials and tribulations they face come to bear on their musical production and cultural production. I think, yeah, I think there's a, a challenge there. And I think it's nice to be able to push back as a small group against some of those barriers and boundaries. And I think most of us that are actively doing this are, but continuing to sort of say it and speak it, that that's what we're doing, I find to be a really helpful framework, particularly in pedagogical practice. Yeah, even if the shorthand continues to be Jewish music for now. Yeah. <laughs> Do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And of course, if this question seems too essentializing, what questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead? I think at various points and in various moments, I feel like I know what Jewish music is. When I'm thinking about Jewish music for Bernstein or from a Bernstein perspective, I maybe know what it means a little bit more when there's something about a, a tom, a flavor, right? But having gone really deep into Uganda personally and scholarly, I see this wealth and this breadth living with a canter and 10 feet of records in my living room of the Jewish art music and Israeli folk music and Hazanut tradition. How are we to kind of take these one specific things? And I think it's in the Reuben and Baron book where they talk about Jewish music is music that serves Jewish purposes. And I often land on this one. That one often feels good to me that we are thinking about how musics are used and can we take something that isn't Jewish in its formation and turn it into a Jewish music. You only need to go to a Jewish summer camp and you will see that immediately when they're singing a Don Alam to whatever is the pop tune of the moment. And 
And so finding what it means in a certain moment or in a certain space is how I engage with Jewish music because I think it's there and I want it to be there. And I, as a scholar, need it to be there, right? I need somebody to have a Jewish voice if I'm going to write the book on them and their Jewish voice. But I think that we have to make sure that we're not setting ourselves up to find what we want to find. And again, being kind of flexible that maybe you're going to find that in this moment, Jewish music or being Jewish musically is something really different than in another moment. And even in my dissertation, it's different in every case study for every individual and then sometimes for the same individual at different moments or in different spaces. I think that was an excellent answer. And I am so grateful to you for agreeing once again to be on the podcast. And I can't wait to see what your project does next, what you do next. And thank you again, Amanda. It's such a pleasure to always be with you, Sam. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and Harvard University Center for Jewish Studies. Tune in next month when I will be joined by Dr. Kay kaufman Shalomay to discuss her ongoing research on the connections between Jewish and African musical worlds.